0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everyone, welcome back to the show. Over the next few weeks and months, we're going to be rolling out an oral history of social media which in my view has been the dominant medium of the first quarter of the 21st century, shaping our age just as our age has shaped it. Last week I was in New York and to kick off this series I had the great fortune to sit down with my old frenemy Jeff Jarvis, one of the most articulate and passionate supporters of social media, a man very visible on Twitter as a blogger and as a supporter of publicness. And we began our conversation with Jeff explaining to me the origins of his love affair, his own personal love affair with social media. Jeff Jarvis, do you remember when the first time you heard the term social media or social network?
1: I heard the term a long time after I was already doing it. Uh, I was blogging since 2001. Nick Denton, I remember, first introduced me to blogging. Uh, we had inv- I was working for Advance, for the New Houses. We had invested in his company. Moreover, I was in the board. And one day Nick came and said, I have to show you something, I have to show you something. And he showed me Blogger. And I said, big deal, Nick, you put something on the web. I didn't, I didn't realize what the importance of this was at all. Uh, but I finally did. I started blogging myself after I survived the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11th. And then Nick sent a few posts that I wrote to friends of his in LA who were blogging, Ken Welch and Matt Lane, uh, Ken Lane and Matt Welch. And um, they linked back to me and I linked to them. And that was the moment that I said, aha, this changes the fundamental structure of media. This is conversational. This is what it's really about is not content but conversation. And so I, I mark the beginnings of social media with those early days of blogging and people licking to each other.
0: You you say this was after 9-11, uh, but blogging began before 9-11.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was part of um, a wave of what were called war bloggers, right? The first bloggers were tech bloggers because uh, they owned the, the technology and made the technology. I mean, it goes farther back than that, too. I first bought my first Osborne 1 in 1981, and I went on, on CompuServe. And on CompuServe, I was finding groups to talk with, and that was social media too. I was on Usenet when I was a TV critic, finding people who were talking about TV shows. That was social media too. Uh, so I was doing all that between between that time, but then come 2001, blogging is what really changed my view of media. Do
0: you remember, you, you mentioned that you were a survivor of, of 9-11, uh, what was your 9-11 day like?
1: long story made short, I was on the last PATH train into the World Trade Center as the uh, first jet hit and came up uh, onto the concourse which normally of course was quite busy and it was empty except for empty shoes. Women had run out of their shoes. Came up above onto the ground level and cops were there screaming at us to run. Went across the street standing in front of the complex as the second jet hit. As a journalist, I thought I should stay around and report. I did. I was about a block away from the South Tower when it came down. Um, I was completely engulfed in the destruction, the dust of destruction, found refuge in an office building, uh, managed to make it out and make it up, walked up to Times Square, and there I wrote my story about the day. A week or so later, I said I had more to say, so I started a blog on Blogger, and I've been reading blogs, I've been caring about blogs, but I had to start one myself. And I thought I would do it for just a few weeks, but it soon took over all available time and consciousness.
0: Explain why blogs are such a big deal or why they were such a big deal or why you, how you discovered them to be such a big deal.
1: Once I started playing with them and understanding the power of the link, that's what made them a big deal. The fact that we could have a conversation in different times and different places, and through the link, could connect with each other. And through the link, we could decide what was worth paying attention to and recommend it. Uh, in the early days of blogs, we had blog rolls, and we would, you know, pridefully mark those who we even disagreed with, because the conversation is what mattered. And that, I think, is essential. I just, I just finished a book called The Gutenberg Parenthesis, pardon me for the plug, and what I realized in writing that book was that the early days of print were highly conversational, right? The Martin Luther in, in dispute with the Pope and burning each other's books uh, in, in, as, a, as a form of conversation. Erasmus and Sir Thomas More and so on and so on. Uh, print was about public discourse until we hit the mid-1800s and the mechanization and industrialization of print. Uh, with steam-powered presses and with the linotype and stereotyping and so on and print became mass. That robbed print and media of its conversational nature and it became owned and top-down and and high-scale. The internet and blogging, I think, changed that and bring us back to the other side of the parenthesis again, where we understand what it means to have conversational media. And I think we as a society are just beginning to relearn how to have a conversation with ourselves. And this results in the early bad days, and we're still in them, of social media when there are trolls and jerks and people who want to perform. And I think we'll get past that, but it's going to take a little while.
0: 9-11, of course, was perhaps, we can think of it in many different ways, but amongst others, as the last stand of traditional media. You were a mainstream journalist. No one really or very few people went to blogs to find out what happened. How did you find out once you were um, redirected from your PATH train underneath the old Trade Center? How did you find out what happened that day?
1: Um, I was standing across the street from the complex when the second jet hit. I felt the heat of it. The presumption before that, as we talked among ourselves in the crowd, was that uh, an errant plane had gone astray. At that point, we pretty much knew that wasn't the case. Uh, we were rushed back from that site, back on into the financial district. And I remember standing around a manhole cover with a power worker, had a radio uh, on top of it, and we were gathered around the radio, various of us listening to that, a woman came out of one of the World Trade Centers. She'd gotten down from, I think, the 30-something floor. Her, her, her dress was covered with uh, dots of water from the sprinklers. And as we stood there, we heard that the Pentagon had been hit. That's when we knew what had happened. Uh, I wandered around and picked up color and called into the newsroom with some of the color. That's what we do as journalists. And then I was back around a block away from the South Tower when it fell. Um, and I, frankly, didn't had not thought far enough ahead to imagine that the building could fall.
0: Was there, at the time of uh, the attack on the World Trade Center, was there trust, do you think, in mainstream media? Did people believe what they saw on, on, on CNN or on MSNBC or even on Fox or what they read in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times?
1: We in mainstream media have been fooling ourselves for generations about the trust we thought we owned. We didn't. When Walter Cronkite said, and that's the way it is, many Americans said, not for me, it's not. Mainstream media was for, for, for its history run by people who look like me, all white men. And what I celebrate about the internet, what I celebrate about the so-called social media is that now the communities who for too long were not represented and not served in mainstream white mass media, now finally can be heard. Their voices have always been there, but they didn't have a place for it until we saw Facebook and Twitter And so on. And so I think that the equation of trust, the presumption of trust, has been misplaced for years. Now, of course, in American media, trust, as measured by pollsters, has been falling since the 70s, uh, since Nixon, we presume. Uh, That's mainly on the right. Um, But also through the Vietnam War, through other episodes on the left, too, there was a lack of trust. So, no, I don't think that there was high trust in media, in mainstream media at the time. It was all we had until we had alternatives, and by having alternatives, um, uh, that changed the equation. Now, of course, at the same time, we had right-wing talk radio and then Fox News coming along and becoming a, a hegemon on the right, so there was just them on the right and everybody else was on the left, and that's part of what's caused the problem here, plus the mendacity of the Murdochs also causes a problem in trust.
0: Was there a public event, a major international American event, after 9-11, which inaugurated our social media age?
1: I guess it would have to be the Arab Spring and Tahrir Square. Um, and at the time, I remember many arguments that some people were saying this was a Twitter revolution, and I, among others, were saying, no, there's no such thing. It's not. It's a revolution of brave people. Uh, but I think that's where we saw uh, the power of what was possible followed on by um, Occupy Wall Street, followed on by Black Lives Matter, and so on, I think that these these hashtag movements that came along showed the power. To my mind, it's the First Amendment fully brought to life. It's not just protection of the press, but also of the rights to assemble and to act, to petition grievances. And the Internet brings all those rights and all those acts together uh, in a way that we've seen through the hashtag revolutions. Now, the complaint, of course, is that The Arab Spring has now come to naught because it's a lot easier to tear things down than it is to build things in this world we have. And it takes time. After print, um, we had a 30 years war. We had peasants wars. We had a a reformation. We had a lot of disruption that came after that change in society, and we don't know what's ahead. We could have a 30 years war ahead of us.
0: As you say, uh, the experience of 9-11 and your discovery of the blogging community and the blogging technology changed your life. You became one of the most prominent and read first wave, 1.5 wave of bloggers, the first blogger that you were the next wave after. Uh, How did it change you?
1: Blogging changed me tremendously, starting with my personal life and then my professional life, my media life, right? I now had the ability to make friends around the world. I remember surfing to try to find, I, 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 I speak a little bit of very bad German and always trying to improve it. So I would go on and I would find German bloggers and was amazed by that, that I could, I could connect with people around the world. And so my definition of local became more global because I could meet people. More important by far, professional level, I realized that the old structure of top-down, one-way media, mass media, was wrong. And I've been grappling with that ever since and trying to understand that. And that's why I chose to go back and research our entry into the age of print as we leave it now to see what lessons we have from there. And I'm not saying that history repeats itself or even that it sings in harmony, but there are lessons from that disruption where you, you had a time when many more voices could be heard The first call for censorship, alleged call for censorship, came in 1470. Niccolò Perotti, who was a translator, was much offended by a translation of Pliny. And he wrote to the Pope and said, you must do something, you must appoint a censor to correct all these plates before they're printed. And I realized, as I thought about that, he wasn't asking for a censor at all. What he was seeking was the invention of the institutions of editing and publishing. And those institutions brought quality and credibility To print and they've worked for a very long time but they're not up to the task of dealing with the scale of speech we have now and we're going to have to either reinvent or invent new institutions and you have written about the need to protect institutions and I agree but it's also incumbent upon the institutions themselves to update themselves and understand new tasks or be replaced.
0: So what happened in the nine years, between 9-11 and 2010, 2011, to make social media so central to uh, the politics of our age?
1: I think we saw the corporatization of social media, not unlike the corporatization of earlier media, you know, Time, Inc., and uh, the magazine, and and its time, uh, with Twitter and Facebook. Uh, what, blogging was a wonderful, beautiful thing. It was all distributed and, and you could do it from anywhere and you, no one owned it. And I think we're gonna to return to that kind of architecture. But then along came Twitter and Facebook and especially Twitter kind of ruined me because if I had, I had used blogs in the very early days, a lot like Twitter. I would post four or five or six things in a row in the same post as if they were short mini things. Um, and then I would write longer things too, uh, but it was a mix of all that. Along comes Twitter and my desire to get something off my, out of my head, little short things, suddenly I had a place for it and I didn't blog about it anymore and my blogging frequency went down considerably. I'm not saying the world wanted to hear me every day anyway in blogging, but it changed the bio-rhythm of what I thought of. Uh, Facebook was different. Facebook, I think, was about connecting with friends and that was, that was different from connecting with ideas. Uh, Twitter, you know, when I, when I interviewed Ev Williams for a prior book, uh, they didn't know what Twitter was going to be. It was only after they started that Ev saw that it could be a newswire for the world, a newswire of what's happening right now uh, anywhere. The plane landing in the Hudson River proved that. And so I think that the capability of bringing together lots of people around these two platforms um, centralized the discussion in a way that it could then be exploited by politicians and advertisers and marketers uh, who were, were accustomed to mass media and its scale. That's lasted until Elon Musk bought Twitter, and then I think it ruins it all, and I think we're going to have to return to the essence of the internet, which is open, end-to-end, distributed, uh, so that we don't get taken over by a narcissistic nihilist again. You say that uh,
0: Twitter ruined you. What, what do
1: you mean? I just mean that I, I blogged a lot less. I could get something. But isn't Twitter out. a
0: form of blogging, just short blogging?
1: Yeah, it is. It is. It just as as a blogger, I felt loyalty to the forum. so I felt like I was being a bit disloyal to my blog. Uh, Buzz Machine was my blog, and I had comments on it, and I used to read the comments all the time, and then trolls would come in, and I'd kill their spam and their trollishness. I I don't pay any attention to the comments there anymore at all, uh, because that's not where the discussion was occurring. The discussion was now occurring on Twitter. Uh, my little short ideas or reactions to things that I wanted to get out, that was occurring on Twitter. So it just made me feel like I was cheating on my blog.
0: You uh, you, you became well known as someone who talked a lot about your own life. Uh, you read a book, Private Parts. You talked about some, uh, some of the health issues you were going through. How did that change you as a person? I mean, you were presumably before 2001, most people didn't, you weren't a, a public figure. You became, in a way, maybe not a, a major public figure, but a minor one, at least in social media circles.
1: Well, when I worked for the San Francisco Examiner, I was a columnist. I had to fill 1,500 words a day, six days a week. I competed against Herb Keane, who was the king of the city. I didn't get the gossip he got. So I ended up writing about myself somewhat there, too. So that that ego that comes out of being a columnist, I think, fits right over into blogging. Uh, and so I was a bit comfortable with that. I started blogging, as I say, with 9-11, so that was an intensely personal uh, experience. And when I got prostate cancer, um, I, yeah, I chose immediately to blog about it. And I found nothing but benefit from that. Uh, I got great advice from people who've gone through it before. I've given advice to people who've gone through it after me. Um, I found solace and, and help in that. And when I wrote the book Public Parts about that experience and more, um, I, I, I told the story there was only one person who accused, who didn't like me anyway, uh, who accused me of oversharing. And the problem was he was just over-listening.
0: Who was
1: that? Oh, I can't even remember his name. I don't even. The good thing is he's forgotten. It wasn't you? How
0: did your your family feel about it? How did your wife feel about
1: it? Uh, my family seems to be fine with it, but I leave them out of it. Um, I, it's it's my life that I can talk about, and that works for me. Uh, my wife is and my kids are intensely personal, and I and I don't blog about them. Uh, my father died. Uh, two weeks ago, and I did write a post about him in public uh, because I thought it was kind of the right thing to do. And I realized as I was doing it, it was my reflex as a newspaper guy that I I, I understand the power of obits, even over the grave. And so it is a reflex of mine to be fairly public. My joke is that my life is an open blog. But I've generally found a lot of benefit in that.
0: Was Obama the first social media president?
1: Obama was the first one who succeeded at being the social media president, Uh, and and I think um, it wasn't just social media, it was also fundraising and organizing uh, that made that operate. Uh, And so I think they did it very successfully, yeah.
0: Was he, though, uh, did he have the the mentality of a social media president? Uh, When you talk about the conversation and links, was he the first at least American, successful American politician to
1: take advantage of that? I'll separate it out a bit, um, that I think Obama was the social media candidate. Once he became president, he didn't really do social media nearly as much, and now that he's left, he does it a little bit more. And so I think it was, it was very much about uh, winning an office. Same thing was happening in the UK about the same time. Um, where you saw candidates who used social media and used YouTube and used video to have a voice and speak directly to their public and use that effectively. Once they were in office, uh, I think we saw less of that. And, of course, the first true social media president in office, God help us, was Donald Trump. Um, And he ruined it for everybody who follows. How did he ruin it? Oh, just because he schmutzed up uh, social media as he does everything he touches. Well, I, I, I think that that anyone who tries to use social media now while in office is going to be judged as to whether or not they're um, doing it cynically. Everything Trump does is cynical, nihilistic, uh, noxious, and um, it affects, I think, the reputation of the platform and official on it. Uh, so... I'm not sure how much it's going to be used in the future by people in office. It's still going to be used by candidates because it's a terribly efficient way uh, to raise money directly from the voters.
0: Going back to 9-11, if social media had been around back then, if there'd been Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, how would it have been different?
1: I've often thought about this. Um, On that day, as I ran away from... The destruction of the South Tower falling, I lost my phone. But my phone was a little flip phone, because that's what we had at the time. And there are scenes that, of course, are, are seared into my mind, some that I choose not to share or come back to, but others that I do. I remember walking out of the place where I had found shelter underground in an office building and came back out, and I saw an African American couple walking along, uh, dazed. And I saw the traces of tears on the woman's face on the, from the white ash of destruction. And I asked them, are you okay? And they said, yeah, we're okay. And they kept walking. And that's that's the, one example of a scene that's in me, the scenes that I saw of people who, like me, were absolutely covered in the dust, the people who, in the lobby of the business, uh, of, of the bank building I was in, were trying to wash off this with, with Snapple, with anything. Those were scenes that I couldn't capture. And I, I vowed that ever since then, as a journalist, I would always have a camera with me. And of course now, we all do. Uh, and I think that, that that's the key thing, is not just social media, not just the words, more the images. How America and the world saw 9-11 was from rooftop cameras three to five miles away. They saw smoke rising. From Lower Manhattan, I saw it at ground level, covered in the dust of destruction. Uh, people staggering uh, out of this—that um, was a very different view. If we'd had social media, if we'd had our phones and our and our cameras with us then, we would have had a public chronicling of that event that would have been far more intimate, I think, and far different. Um, we also might have saved some more lives because. You know, afterwards I remember somebody I respected saying as an engineer I could see what was going to happen to that building it was going to fall and I got the hell out of there I think we would have seen more of those kinds of warnings on social media to say you shouldn't be anywhere near this and my wife is mad at me to this day that I stuck around as a, as a journalist um, I think um, we would have had more humanity to the coverage of it and not just that big mass media lens on it from afar Who,
0: who do you think is most, I wouldn't say responsible, but um, who who contributed most to the, the building of our social media age? I know you're a big fan of Dave Weiner and his contribution to RSS, but are there a handful of people who you think should be seen as the founders, the pioneers, the makers of our social media age?
1: Yeah, there are, and I'll probably leave some out. I think Dave Weiner is very important because he built one of the first blogging platforms. He built RSS, which is a way to share content across. He used that to build podcasting then, which is, I also think, is social media. Uh, I think Ev Williams is incredibly important. Uh, Ev, having built a Blogger as, as co-founder with Meg Horahan, I think they're they're quite critical at that stage. And then Ev went on to co-found Twitter and then went on to co-found Medium and Pennants, probably, for co-founding Twitter. Um, I think he changed the world a couple of times. Uh, Matt Mullenweg uh, at um, uh, WordPress, uh, the founders as well of, of Typepad, I think were important in creating uh, tools alongside Blogger that made it very easy for people to start blogs, whether it was to run it on your own server or to go to a hosted service. It was no problem. Uh, I think. Um, there were other early sites like that. I mean, But I also think we need to go again back to unnamed people who were in Usenet and who were on uh, CompuServe and The Source and uh, Prodigy uh, where there's no names that really stand out there in the early days of AOL as well. Uh, all walled gardens, uh, but social in their way. I worked very briefly for Delphi Internet, which was the first uh, service to uh, bring internet access to the public past military and the academe. And they understood the value of conversation and forums there. They got bought by News Corp, almost ruined, and then bought back. Uh, so those those were the early services that I think had an important factor. But when we got to the web, it was possible to do this in an open an open source way. Uh, protocols over platforms for a while, and blogging mattered greatly then. But I, you have to give credit, I think, to... Mark Zuckerberg as well. Uh, he had a vision. Uh, I wish he'd had more of a North Star of what that vision meant, um, but but he brought a lot of people on to think as community and think about connection. Um, I think the founders of YouTube count in this uh, for imagining the idea of social video. Google for buying them and buying Blogger, and they've never been a social company. They haven't been good at it. They didn't do well with Google+, yet they supported some of these early platforms that mattered. Um, there's a lot more in those early days, but I think so. those are just some of the people.
0: And um, finally, what do you think your life would have been like today in 2023 had there not been social media?
1: You know, I, I look back to friends of mine who worked on newspapers when I worked on newspapers. And the goal was to rise to be the editor-in-chief of the newspaper. And I have a few friends who, in fact, finally did that and thought I was nuts when I left to go into this crazy digital world, and now are rather jealous of me that I got out, that I escaped the downward spiral of old media. I think I'd be a crotchety old bastard sitting on a copy desk working for my retirement. Uh, What social media and the internet did was gave me another life, another childhood, another career.